Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333-2020-401 and join the debate. Hello and a very good morning. I'm Ali Bally and indeed this is Scotland's Talking. Coming up on the programme today, we're opening up the phone lines for your thoughts on the state of play with Brexit. MPs have rejected the Prime Minister's deal again. They voted to block no deal. And now they've agreed to put Brexit into extra time. We're only days out from Brexit and the government can't find a way through it. But this is a problem. This is a crisis entirely of the Prime Minister's own making. So says the SNP's Stephen Gethins. But the Scottish Secretary, David Mundell, says the answer is just to take the deal. MPs who want to see Brexit delivered and want to see it delivered within the foreseeable future really have only one option. And after 11 o'clock is every parent's worst nightmare. Your child is fighting for life and you're the only one who can save them. I had a laser beam focus that nothing else in the whole universe matters right now than getting her to breathe. The MSP Alex Cole Hamilton will be telling us about how his quick thinking saved his four-year-old girl when she swallowed a coin. But here's the question. Are you confident in your first aid skills? Are they up to scratch? And an item we didn't have time for last week, we want to hear your stories on making a big career change. We'll meet Bruce, who gave up a big job in banking to retrain as a nurse. Although I enjoyed the job, there was something missing, there was something not there, and I thought, you know, what else can I do? So, yes, I gave up all the perks of working for a bank and came to work for the health service. Music and conversation for the next two hours. This is Scotland's Talking. As always, we're looking for your opinion. The phone lines are open now, 033 2020 401 Scotland's Talking The Podcast Well, will it or even should it be third time lucky for Theresa May and her Brexit deal? What a week in Westminster. Uh, The deal of course was rejected for a second time by a huge margin with both leavers and remainers still finding it unpalatable. They also voted against leaving with no deal. Ever. And then finally on Thursday, they agreed to delay Brexit by up to three months to buy time to sort this all out. And they've had already a couple of years. But can they sort it all out? And how? The Scottish Secretary, David Mundell, says it's quite simple, you know. You know, it's the Prime Minister's deal. It's no deal. Parliament doesn't want no deal. That's been rejected or it's potentially no Brexit, and no Brexit could come about with a lengthy extension. So MPs who want to see Brexit delivered and want to see it delivered within the foreseeable future really have only one option. Well, if they want to see it delivered, why can't they get on with it? (sighs) SNP Europe spokesman Stephen Gethins says he thinks the way to fix this is to get us to vote on it again. We know from the government's own analysis that the Prime Minister's deal will cost jobs in Scotland, will hit our economy. The best deal that we have is the one that we have at present as a member of the European Union. That's the best deal we have. But to find a way through this, we are prepared to work with our colleagues in Plaid Cymru, Liberal Democrats, Greens, and even some in Labour who hold the same views as we do and give people a final say as a way out of this mess. So how do you feel about Brexit being pushed back until June, or maybe even longer? Is it time to take the deal? Or is it time to have another referendum? After all, 
if it's, I suppose, democratic for MPs to keep on voting on the same thing until they get the result the government wants, what's so bad about us being asked again? Our political correspondent Alan Smith has spent most of the week camped out at Westminster. You've enjoyed it though, haven't you? <laughs> it's been it's been one of the longest weeks of my life. Um, <laughs> These are days you'll never get back, Alan. Oh, absolutely, and hours I'll never get back as well. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was quite a, a quite an extraordinary week when you know you, you you've set out there all the the possibilities what could happen next. You know, we were asking these questions. All week with every single day, with every single vote we were having at Westminster, there were so many ifs and buts and, you know, throwing a couple of twists and surprises along the way as well. So it is one of those weeks at Westminster that that will live long in, in many people's memories. So where are, oh, we certainly know where we are at the moment. I, mean, I, I was uh, sitting, listening and watching it on Thursday with the... Um, John Berko taking centre stage. I thought he was going to bust, bust a blood vessel at some point. You know, he was, he was getting quite oh, hit yeah. up, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's got some job, you know, at the moment with, with, with so much division at Westminster, so much tension as well, people on edge about what happens next. And obviously he's got this key role to play when it comes to, you know, the amendments that are selected for all these motions that, the, that, the, that they're voting on. So... There's there's a lot of pressure on him right now as well, especially as he's got to be seen to be completely neutral in all of this. So he he will be feeling the pressure. Although some of the uh, MPs, <laughs> as you would imagine, on both sides saying that he's not neutral at all. Um, so right, plain man's talking. <laughs> where do we go? Well, as you kind of said at the top there, you know there are so many options. Of what could happen, and and I mean this this week, yes, they, they voted down. I mean, the, the clearest thing that came out of this week was MPs voting down Theresa May's deal on Tuesday, mm -hmm. on Wednesday. <clears throat> excuse me, on Wednesday with the with the no deal vote. That is still a possibility. There is still a possibility that we could leave on March 29th without a deal, despite the vote on Wednesday, where MPs basically said they wanted to rule out no deal under any circumstances. Because the original legislation that was passed, um, you know, starting Article 50, starting this whole process to get us out of the EU, that supersedes everything. So that's still in place, that's still in law. The vote on Wednesday about ruling out no deal under any circumstances, there's no kind of legal weight behind that. That's just a kind of will of Parliament. And then the vote on Thursday about the uh, delay, basically there, there are a couple of options now that if MPs back Theresa May's deal, you know, you know, she could bring it back this week, she's expected to bring it back this week. If they back that deal, then the delay will be until the end of June, just so they can get all the bits of legislation, all the work they need to do around it through Parliament to give them a bit of time to make sure it's done properly by the end of June. And of course, if they don't back uh, Theresa May's deal for the third time, then there is the the warning that Theresa May is putting out there that the, 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 the delay in leaving the EU could be much longer or potentially there could be no Brexit at all. Why would MPs um, vote for this for a third time when they've knocked it back twice? Is she changing? Is she moving any inch at all? Well, I mean, this the deal if she brings it back this week will be uh, exactly the same as what they voted on last week. Right. It'll be exactly the same as what they voted on on Tuesday. Um, what they're basically trying to do, I mean, she's being accused of running down the clock, so giving MPs very little time and little 
choice on the matter is, is basically, you know, we're getting to the point now where we could have no Brexit. So she's sticking firm to her plan and saying it's either this plan or it's no Brexit at all. And this week, you know, you've got the, 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 the European research group within the, the Tory party, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg mm. and a lot of Brexiteers. They, they were split on Tuesday past over voting for Theresa May's deal because... You know, it was all talk about the legal aspect of it, the legal advice from the Attorney General. But the, the belief at Westminster is they're actually just testing Theresa May to see if her threat of no Brexit at all, um, or, you know, this long delay to allow for a second EU referendum, you know, if this uh, is just a, a fake threat, if she's just, <clears throat> if she's just trying to find a way to, to get them to back it, you know, so they're, it's almost like calling her bluff yeah, yeah, at the yeah. moment. She's so, playing for time and they're waiting to see if they can call her bluff. Right. So if, if, yeah. if we, let's say, extended, if it's extended to even take a second vote from the public, that's going to, um, on what I've been picking up, going to take us into the latter part of the year before they can get that organised, which yeah, means... Ta- yeah, time to get uh, any kind of legislation through for a for a, a second vote, a, a people's vote, if, if people have been calling it, uh, you know, that takes a long time to get that yeah. type of legislation through Westminster. So if, you know, the, the, if Theresa May brings her deal back this week and there will be an amendment lodged calling for a second vote, a people's vote, and if that can get a majority where her deal can't and you know, MPs clearly show they want to go down that route, then the extension that the PM will call for when she goes to the EU would be a much longer extension than this June 30th date that we've been given just now. Which brings more problems because the European elections are coming into play, um, which means we would, or the UK would have to put people forward for elections. That's what we've been told that, you know, if the delay is much longer than will be required to have these elections and put people back in the in the European Parliament for for the meantime. So, you know, it's just another thing to throw in the mix. And, and you know, it was one of the things Theresa May has been using as well to try and get people to back her deal to say, look, if we don't do this, then we're going to have to take part in the European elections and we're going to still have to have people in the European Parliament. Mm. OK, um, stay with us for the moment, Alan, please. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Anthony Salomon from the Scottish Centre on European Relations. Anthony, good morning. Good morning. What do you make of this then? Well, I think, it, it from, I think it's important to consider both, not just the UK side, but of course the EU side as well. You know, the right. EU 27 member states, they have their own interests. They're watching the Brexit process very closely um, and they have to start taking decisions as well as how to respond to the chaos that's happened in Westminster this week, particularly on extension and indeed what to happen if there's a no-deal Brexit. I was just in Brussels this past week uh, and and the EU27 don't have a common view yet on extension. Uh, So that's something that they really need to think about uh, and figure out how they're going to respond to what Theresa May eventually asks for. So, Anthony, if she goes and asks for a six-month extension, am I correct in my thinking that every one of the European countries has to agree to this, only needs one to say no? Yes, that's right. Uh, every member state would have to agree, all 27 of them. Um, and the, if, if Theresa May asks for an extension of six months or indeed more, they really would want to know what that extension would be for. 
they don't want to prolong Brexit without a reason, and indeed without a reason that would might lead to some sort of finality. I think it's important to keep in mind that the EU, while they regret Brexit, they don't want it to happen. If it is going to happen, they really do just want to get it over with. The EU27 are ready. They're ready for a deal, and they're also prepared for no deal, I think much more than the UK as well. Uh, so if Theresa May asks for a long extension, they'll want to know as of next Thursday what, what she would be asking it for. I think it's quite clear that she doesn't seem to know what she would be asking for. She, she clearly, at the moment anyway, doesn't want to have a general election. She's always said she doesn't want to have a second referendum. Uh, the E would want to know that before they said yes. Okay. Also with us is Mev Brown from Scotland for Leave. Mev, good morning. Uh, good morning. Welcome to the programme. Um, uh, does Does anything change uh, as far as you're concerned? You're still, uh, I mean, how long have you had the feeling that you want to leave? You know, how, how long has that been in your mind? Let's oh. get out of this community here. Uh, probably shortly after I was born. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. So nothing's going to change your mind then? Year. Absolutely not. Uh, I, I mean, to be honest, it's hard to know how to frame the, the key issues in this in this debate. Um, I mean, first off, the Prime Minister has put together a withdrawal agreement that is absolutely atrocious. Um, one of the big things for me is when Russia annexed Crimea uh, in 2014, it created um, global outrage. The Prime Minister is effectively annexing Northern Ireland to Europe in perpetuity until such time as the EU decides otherwise. I, I do not understand how any unionist can accept that. That aside, um, it's... it's the prime, I have an expression, best politicians never lie, they just never tell the truth. And one of the key debating points that the Prime Minister is not talking about is Article 24 of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades. That article, if triggered, um, maintains our current trade arrangements with the European Union for two years so we can negotiate a deal. The reason she's not talking about that is it means we leave the European Union. She is clearly determined keep Britain locked into the European Union. And it's just a charade. The whole mm. thing's just a charade. Anthony, do you agree with Mev that she's playing for time? Um, well, I, I don't think that I necessarily agree with anything that Mev said, first on the point of Northern Ireland. I mean, I think your, your listeners will well know that the whole process of what's gone on around Brexit, but clearly the UK government and the EU27 have agreed to the withdrawal agreement to protect the peace settlement in Northern Ireland and to avoid the imposition of a hard border and everything about the backstop, which neither side wants to see ever come into force, is about avoiding that. It's not about trapping Northern Ireland or the UK in, in anything. It's about ensuring that what already exists uh, stays put. In terms of the question of Theresa May's own motivations on Brexit, I, I don't know what Theresa May thinks, but she clearly seems to be pushing for Brexit with a deal. Uh, and I think the EU would want to have a deal as well. And indeed, Anyone would, would want to have a deal. I think it, you should think of what the UK's position be with, like without a deal. Uh, and it would be very difficult to see how the UK could have a functional, positive relationship with the European Union if there was no deal, if there was acrimony over citizens' rights, over payments to finalise the UK's obligations uh, in terms of the EU budget. And this is obligations the UK already made, not new ones. Um, the UK will always be very close to the European Union geographically and needs to have a functional relationship with it, which means if Brexit should happen, that it should probably be with a deal. Anthony, the, we know that the, you know, it's, it's, we know that the vote was from um, those who voted was to leave. Uh-huh. And we continually hear that um, if we were to leave, 
then we are a big enough country, we are rich enough ourselves, we should carry on with it, and that Europe need us as much as we need them. There has to be a little bit of sense in that argument in the fact that people in Spain, in France, they would still want to get their goods over to, to the UK, um, whether it be fruit and veg or cars or whatever. They'd still want to be selling their products to the UK. So why don't we just you know, do what the public asked and get out? Well, leaving the European Union with a deal is certainly a way of delivering Brexit if you want Brexit to happen. I think from the EU side of the argument, um, you have to remember what's important to the European Union. Yes, of course, I think every member state regrets Brexit happening, but they care about the future of their own project, their own countries. You know, the 27 member states constitute a massive market of around 450 million people. I was in Berlin several weeks ago. I was speaking to German officials there. One very senior official told me, we don't want Brexit to happen, but our calculation is that preserving the unity of the European Union, so that means not doing a special deal for the UK that would never do for anyone else outside the EU, uh, and in preserving the integrity of our single market, we judge that to be in our vital national interest and much more important than our relationship with the UK. I think that's a very stark assessment mm. uh, for them to make, uh, and it shows that they care about preserving the EU more than doing a deal for the UK that is not something they would agree with any other third country. Mev, surely just the same as you're, you're looking for the best for Scotland, you could understand the, the 27 member states looking for the best for their country. That That's what they're there for. That's why they were put into power, to look after the, their country. Well, I mean, theoretically, that's what any government should do. I mean, I do question that with regard to uh, this government. Uh, I mean, I did commission a poll recently, um, and the findings were something like 39, sorry, um, 35% of British voters we're not sure if uh, the British government put Britain's interests of the European Union. Um, of, the remain, of the remainder, um, 61% took the view that British MPs uh, put the interests of the European Union above the best interests of the UK. That's a startling figure. And, and to go off, if, if I may, uh, to go off at a slight tangent for a second, I, I, I did do a poll with UGOV last weekend and the question was, do you know a, a, a European citizen who's married or in a relationship with a UK citizen? 30, uh, 39% said yes, 50, uh, 51% said no, and 10% weren't sure. Um, European citizens, uh, they're part of our society. They're, they've, they're woven into the fabric of this country. Um, they're, they're our friends, they're our colleagues, uh, and, our, and obviously our partners. You know, this is not about... You know, we need to maintain a good relationship with Europe. I mean, you know, they are important trading partners. Uh, they are an important part of our society. So, yeah, we want a good deal. But at the end of the day, we have to get the best deal for Britain, not for Europe. OK, just a reminder, the phone lines are open if you'd like to join us. And it's 0333 2020 401. Back in a moment. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. And we're talking Brexit at the moment. We have Mev Brown from uh, Scotland for Leave. And we also have Anthony Salomon, who's uh, from the Scottish Centre on European Relations. And we also have our political correspondent, Alan Smith, with us. Alan, you've been listening to what our two guests have been saying there. Any points you want to, to raise? 
Yeah, I would just like to, you know, obviously this is going to be um, if Theresa May brings her deal back for a third time this week, another monumental week in this whole uh, process, and and we're seeing the discussions she's been having this weekend, you know, her pleas for compromise. Um, uh, Mev, just from you know a Brexiteer's point of view, you know, she's she's putting out there that it's basically her deal or potentially no Brexit at all. So if you were put in that position of backing her deal, we know that, that you're not a fan of her deal. Where would you go? I mean, what would your advice be to other Brexiteers at Westminster? What happened to leave means leave. Um, that, you know, you have to question the validity of anything the Prime Minister says now. I mean, she just makes it up as she goes along. Um, you know, I am... I mean, I think some of the concerns about, you know, following for Cliff Edge with regard to the WTO deal is way overstated. Um, I mean, I, I think for the large majority of people, they really wouldn't notice the difference. Um it's as simple as that. Um, are there better deals that could be had? Yes, there is. I mean, um, you, you could go for, I mean, the government's already announced that they're going to zero rate uh, tariffs for something like 87% of, of uh, imports. So, I mean, all the major concerns about falling for cliff edge are gone. Now, the, the Prime Minister knew that probably a long time ago, and she's only chosen to tell the public in the last week or so. And this is, again, it's all this mis- misinformation that's coming out from the government and from Theresa May, that uh, I despair about the state of politics at the moment. I mean, it's, it's just terrible. It's, it's awful. We're making a mockery of democracy. So yeah, I, Philip I Hammond, even, for... even Philip Hammond, sorry, even Philip Hammond's spring statement this week when he was warning about, you know, leaving without a deal, talking about higher unemployment, lower wages, higher prices in shops. What do you make of those types of warnings? It's the same warnings we had in 2016. Uh, it's not worth listening to them. You know, and again, keep in mind that you know, the Bank of England didn't see the 2008 financial crisis coming. Other people, other economists had time to write books about it coming. Um, the, the, their ability to project the, uh, the economic forecast is so close to nil, it's basically nil. Uh, I wouldn't take a word that Philip Hammond or the Bank of England is, uh, you know, gives. It, it's, it's just scaremongering. In so this week then, when MPs have got the choice of, of you know, as Theresa May is putting it, her deal or no Brexit at all, what do you do? The law of the land says that we leave at the end of the month. If there's any respect for the law, they have to pursue that. It's as simple as that. This is a, a question of law. And, and again, I, I would restate this. The, the Prime Minister is making a mockery of democracy. If I could just go to Anthony. Anthony, you said you were in Brussels. Um, oh. You mentioned about how all the EU 2072 uh, agree to an extension. Was there any sense at all that there, there are any, you know, individual countries within the EU27 that might not agree to this extension? Um, well, I think, uh, well, yes. I mean, what uh, what I thought in Brussels is that they they have not decided on a collective view at the moment. Um, I think countries such as France, for instance, might be sceptical. Um, but I think all EU member states be sceptical of prolonging. Brexit without a reason that makes sense to them, you know, for instance, a longer extension for a general election, for a people's vote, for something that will lead to a definitive result in the UK so that they know whether Brexit is happening or the Brexit is not happening. And I think on the other side, Germany is probably more uh, favorable towards um, an extension than, for instance, France. Uh, but but all the countries share relatively similar views that they want to know what the UK wants. Uh, they want to know, and they they don't have a lot of trust in Theresa May. 
because of all of the various things that have happened in Westminster and European councils and so on. Uh, and they want a, a credible position from the UK that they can respond to. But essentially, if there is no agreement in the EU and the, this extension is not agreed to and MPs don't back Theresa May's deal this week, what Mev is saying there about leaving at the end of March without any deal is still possible. Yes, of course. The no-deal Brexit is it's certainly possible. I think clearly that's something that the EU27 don't want. That's something that Theresa May obviously says she doesn't want. And indeed, a no-deal Brexit would be extremely damaging to the UK and to Scotland. Um, I won't, uh, you know, I know that Mev doesn't trust politicians and I don't necessarily trust politicians either, but I do trust experts uh, and expert advice and, and every credible economic analysis I've ever seen about Brexit, no deal Brexit, shows that no deal Brexit would be extremely damaging economically to Scotland and the UK. And I have faith in those predictions. Um, but in terms of, of the politics and, and the EU's point of, of view, um, if no deal Brexit happens, they're prepared for that. They are ready for that. Uh, I don't think the UK is. Mm. Uh, right. Well, thank you very much indeed, Anthony uh, Salmon from the He's a Brexologist from the Scottish Centre of European Relations and also Mev Brown from Scotland for Leave, uh, setting out their thoughts there. Uh, what are yours? Your comments? Treble 3 2020 401 is the number. Plus, of course, you can join us on the text. The text number is 61054. Start your message with Ali and also email ali at thegreatesthits.co.uk. So, Alan, does that mean another week for you down, down in London then? <laughs> another swanning away? A yeah. swanning away, if Absolutely, only. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we're just waiting on, on details of, the, of, of there being a vote. We're expecting it, you know, with all these votes that were happening last week, it was, the, the, you know, this extension, if MPs agreed to Theresa May's deal by the 20th of March. So, you, you know, that would lead us to believe that there'll be a vote on potentially Tuesday. You know, interestingly, um, Liam Fox, you know, the, the the International Trade Secretary, this morning on television, he was talking about how the vote could be pulled, um, saying it would be difficult to justify having a vote if we knew we were going to lose it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it you know, I think tomorrow we'll find out if there's going to be a vote on Tuesday, and I suspect if. With the European Council meeting this week, I suspect that there, that there will be something of significance happening early, early this week. OK, Alan, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning, bringing us up to date, and also to Anthony, as I say, and Mev as well. Uh, it's over to you. Uh, the phone lines are open. That number again, 033 if you've got a point you would like to make. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Good morning, Ali, says Bill. I hope Theresa May's deal is voted through. But if another referendum has to happen, then remaining in the EU must be off the table. We voted to leave. What would be the point of another referendum, then, if we weren't voting again? I, 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 you know, I see what you're saying, that it was voted through and it should stay that way, but I'm um, just questioning your question. I'm maybe not understanding it. Uh, Brett, good morning. Good morning. Your uh, point, please. The, I'm saddened to, to witness the end of democracy. Uh, this House of Parliament, I mean, really, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. And I voted to remain, but I'm also a Democrat. And when the result didn't go my way, I was a bit unhappy, 
Mm-hmm. But I was more happy that democracy won. And thinking back when I had the referendum, I don't remember anything on the referendum saying stay or leave with a deal. Mm-hmm. This deal nonsense came about by Theresa May. She is an out-and-out remainer, and she's struggled in this remain nonsense, this uh, deal nonsense, I should say. And the deal was never there in the referendum. So, you know, she's just making the rules up to suit herself because she wants to remain. And sadly, as I see it, the way the votes have gone in this asylum, she's going to get finished up with her own way. It's going to finish up that we stay. And she's won. You think so? I understand what you're saying, you know, and agree that she's a Remainer, and um, I'm I'm not sure she was the best person to carry out negotiations. However, yeah. you know, that's we are where we are, and, and and I'm not convinced anyway that right from the beginning that she was leading the negotiations. I think too much of this has been left to civil servants looking after um, their own little uh, patch here, and th- you know. So I, I think it goes a bit deeper than just the the prime minister. But where do we go from here then? Well, being a Democrat, as I say, I I really hate myself for saying this, but perhaps it's a time to think about all the youngsters that didn't get a vote the last time and try and have another vote in a few years' time, put it off for a couple of years, and then these youngsters will be able to have a vote. Because it is the future generation we should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Not ourselves, the future my grandchildren and perhaps their their grandchildren, so it goes. But it's really the future of our young people and they haven't had a choice to say how they think. And I know from my own family that uh, they're totally outraged by this performance at Westminster. But they haven't got a voice. Mm-hmm. And so it's not democratic to say stay for a couple of years and then have another referendum, because that's not what I want. I want democracy to win. Houses of Parliament are not going to allow democracy to win under any circumstance. OK, Brett, thank you very much indeed. Uh, good points, mate. Let's go to John. Good morning, John. Good morning, Ali. How are you, my friend? I'm good, thank you. Now then, we've had a week of turmoil and it's obviously caused a lot of conversation in your taxi. What's the word? Well, the word in the street is, Ali, the Parliament, as per usual, just as that man said in front of me, is doing whatever they please. doesn't matter what the government voted, what the people voted for. People made a vote. They said, we want out of Europe by the 27th of the month. You have got two years to do that. They haven't done it. They're nowhere near doing it. They're no any closer to getting some sort of than they were two years ago. Now, the word out in the street in Glasgow Alley is, if you paid someone to do a job for you and you hadn't done it within two years, they wouldn't be in a job. They would be out. Now, if Theresa May and her cronies decide that they want an extension and they get an extension, does that mean then that the vote to separate Scotland from England can go back on the table and get an extension? Does that mean that the the things, the changes they made to the social security system can go back on the table? 
And over and above that, does that mean that all the little fly laws that the fast pushed under the, the the radar while all this has been going on is all going to be changed? No. If there's an extension, Ali, really, the only thing this country can do is shut the door to the Commons because they're a complete and utter farce. We voted to leave. Whether you voted to leave or voted to stay, Democracy said, we're leaving, we should leave, and if we don't leave, then the system doesn't work. And we know the system doesn't work anyway, because they do as they please, Ali. How many millions of pounds have been spent on politicians' wages and politicians this and politicians that, meetings abroad and all the rest of it, when it should have been a simple case of, on the 27th, we're going. Because we're now on, we're on, we're on the ropes now, Ali. The European government are sitting there saying, we've got Britain on the ropes, we'll take our thing what we like, because mm -hmm. they don't know what to do. Instead of being a solid front and saying, we've voted to go, we're going. You sort it out, you tell us what you're offering us, because we're going in the 27th. Okay, John, thank you for that. Uh, all about opinions, John has his. William, you've got yours. Good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. Yeah, we're just listening to the guy there. Stops a lot of sense too. This backstop in the ring, what is all this backstop? Mm. Article 50, that doesn't backstop in Article 50. We'll have to go into that. What is that? It's, it seems to be, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly... How about going to Article 90? Was that not good enough for Article 60 better? But what actually is it? It's, it's, it's the one, it's, no, it's, I'm here, yeah, I'm, I'm just listening and, and, and taking your points, you know, because it's a question that's asked time and time again, what is backstop? And I listen to the um, the explanations that are given by the experts and, and you know, I, I don't know if I'm any the wiser, really. Um, and, you know, we're, we're... Is the experts any the wiser? <laughs> well, if they were, I don't think we'd be in the state we're in. But the politicians yeah. are not coming out of this well at all, are they? The lost scroungers. That's what they are. What did they do? Who's been running the country for the last two and a half years? It's been running itself. Nobody's doing anything. They're only there for themselves. Feathering their own nests. That's what they're doing. Um, they're not interested in the public. Of course it's they like are. years ago, Ali went, no, they're not. Yes, they it's are. Like, oh, they wouldn't put themselves I'm forward. I'm a pensioner, 72, when we went into the EU, well, I don't know if, well, I believe, well, I'll just go in the black market again. Then other countries will be going, oh, 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 Britain's better on the fiddle. Oh, yeah, oh, they're getting this and getting that. I don't think yeah. we can, I don't think you can always um, say that every politician doesn't care about uh, the man okay, or the woman who votes for it. Yeah, I know there are there are there are some who put themselves forward, who get voted in, and who do their damn best for their constituency. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, that's, uh, but I, you know, I will agree that some of them um, just get lost in the, the the political world and and lose touch with the real world as to what is going on. But you've got professional people going into politics, so they've not got enough money when they're professional. They're doing. Well, most of the professional people that go into politics take a pay cut to go into politics. <laughs> William, thank you. Joseph, good morning. 
Good morning, Ali. Your point, please. Well, Ali, I'm 74, nearly 75, and I am sick of it, the whole thing. Right. The whole thing about it is the backbenchers used to be frontbenchers. Because they lost their jobs, they went against their left, right, and centre. And not giving up because they went, well, you push us to the back, we'll try and push you out, Ali. So they're, they're really fighting amongst themselves, Ali. No getting any progress. Why should the people in the country be allowed this fiasco carrying on and carrying on, Ali? And it is going on and on, isn't it? It's, Ali, it's, it must be costing billions of pounds. Yep. Mm-hmm. How many times has she been abroad, here, there, everywhere, to get this sorted out? Millions. It's not just her, Ali. It's her contours, it's where. All, all these big cars, big fancy motors. They have no wee, wee cars in the side street. They're costing forty, fifty thousand pounds she's running about in. But she is the Prime Minister. Yeah, but I'm not talking about her, Ali. I'm talking about the ones behind her. Yeah, well, she, she, need, she, you know, she needs these people with her, um, I would imagine, to... to to try and get a deal through. And, and as I said, some of the earlier talks have been pushed by these people. They're the ones that have been handling them, probably uh, looking after their own interests. And I'm talking about the civil servants. And then the, the ones that, uh, MEP, you're earning millions over there, Ali, doing nothing for this country. I never even heard your MEP to start to come down about Scottish nationalists. I'm going, why much money is she getting? I've hardly had a word for him. Mm-hmm. And they're just sitting there lapping their, their bank books up, Ali, bigger money, bigger money, doing nothing for this country. Right, yeah. well, I've said, you know, I sort of semi-agree with you there. The members of the European Parliament, particularly in Scotland, are very quiet. You don't hear an awful lot. I know, that's what I'm saying, Ali. We don't even know. Some of the, I'm betting 80% of people don't know who he is. No, or she. Or she. Yeah. You know what I mean, Ali? And yes. we're, we're, not getting any, we're not getting any back thing from anybody, Ali. To, so what to happens get... to them who have been probably, um, you know, if at the end of March they would be out of a job? Aye, a big fat pension, Ali. Well, that's not going to happen if there's an extension, is there? No, but I'm saying but if they do get an extension, they'll still get their money, Ali, and we're left here to suffer through it all. No one we're ever going to go to the graves to be with this and be with that. Right? We're going to pay our debts and we pass away, Ali, you know what I mean? OK, thank you very much indeed, Joseph. Eric, give me your quick comment, please. Ah, good morning, Ali. Um, the EU does not want to let us go. The billions that we put in every year to the EU should be kept in this country. Whatever, whatever governments and whatever parties in should get this fixed. And it's, it's fighting within the parties that have done this. Yes, that's, um, what's, that's it, what brought it all about. Yeah, I know. But the thing about it, though, is it's getting there now. Eventually, I, I have to sort of say that I've got to admire Theresa May because she's stuck it out. And her tenacity has been brilliant. And I was brought up with socialists, by the way. But the thing about it, though, is we've got none to fear. We lived out with the EU before the 70s. Anybody born after the 70s, don't worry about it, because we were doing all right before, and we will do all right again. OK, Eric, thank you very much indeed. Have to leave it there because I've got to get up to the news at 11. We'll keep taking your calls on 033-2020-401. In the next hour, I'll be asking, how good are your first aid skills, as well as continuing our calls on Brexit? You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. I'm Ali Bally, and uh, over the last hour we've been talking Brexit, as uh, if you've been there you'll, you'll realise that. Uh, Liz says, uh, Morning, this Brexit situation is a total sham. The extra time I'm prepared to watch is the rugby, and I think Mrs May should be kicked into touch. Thank you, Liz. Uh, Roderick says, I don't quite get the people's vote. It seems they simply want England to change its mind. 
If the vote remains the same, Scotland votes to remain and England votes to leave, we will be leaving the EU anyway, so what is the point of Scotland voting? We are constantly told the UK is a family of nations. Looks like, to me, this family only has one member. Thank you for that. And uh, one from Jan, she says, I think we should have another referendum purely because I feel the general public now have a better idea of the process and what's involved. Really? Um, and are in a better position to to make a decision. I think it depends on who you believe, Jan. Uh, we'll come back to more of your calls and more of your comments as we go through till 12, of course. But right now I'd like to ask, how good are your first aid schools? Mine, I would say, I am just hope, you know, that that somebody else would be there because mine are non-existent. I, I might have a go at something, but worried that I'd do more damage than anything else. But what would you do if you only had seconds to spare to save someone's life? In fact, has it happened to you? The MSP Alex Cole Hamilton has sparked a debate about whether we need to start teaching this sort of stuff in schools after a very alarming incident with his young daughter last weekend when she swallowed a coin. Alex, good morning. It will be a weekend I would imagine that you'll never forget. That's right, Ali. It was uh, it was really dramatic, and I'm just really glad that we're out the other side of it. And we've got our beautiful four-year-old daughter, Darcy, back, and she's bothering her brothers and playing with her unicorns as any four-year-old girl should be. And um, it was a really scary time. So she's she's fine, and it's as if nothing ever happened. Um, but but take us just back to what did happen, and and when you first knew yeah. she was in trouble. So it was Saturday night last week. Um, I was uh, about to leave. I was handing over to the babysitter and I was going to be joining my wife at an event that she was organising. She was already out. And it was literally, you know, that point where your phone's ringing to say the taxi's on approach. I'm getting, getting up to get my jacket. And Darcy is in her jammies watching YouTube on the computer. And um, she, I just heard this strangled cry from the kitchen. Um, so rushed through. And she managed to choke out the words, I've swallowed a penny. Um, at which point then she started to, to turn color, change colour and, uh, and I could see that she couldn't breathe anymore. She was kind of clutching at her neck. Um, and it, it was it was just, it all happened so fast. And, and I, I don't know where this came from, but I, um, well, I, I'd done a course 25 years ago when I was learning to scuba dive and that just snapped to the front of my brain. So I um, sort of kind of took her over my knee, inverted her so her head was beneath her stomach. And I gave her five firm, open-handed claps between the shoulder blades. Um, and just as I was sort of completing the fist, she was sick. I didn't see the penny, but I did hear her gasp. So it, it kind of reassured me that she was moving air again. Um, and I, I stood her up and I said, can you breathe, can you breathe? And that was the point. And she nodded and, and would stabilize her. And that's when I phoned the ambulance. They blew eyes at her to and meet to the sick kids. And they took the coin out of general anaesthetic, but it was, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty pretty terrifying. So the coin was still in there then when you were taking it. Was yeah, yeah. So um, she, I, I mean, when I, I was on the phone to the ambulance, you know, I said, I said, can you still fill the coin? I was hoping in a way that she swallowed it and it gone down into her stomach and, and she could pass it normally. But she said she kept pointing to. Um, the, the top of, well, the, the bottom of her neck, just right. where her neck meets her chest. And said, I can, I, I can feel it. She could 
just about speaking. She was retching and gagging a lot, but she's also still breathing. The ambulance, um, the people on the call centre were saying, don't hit her again on the back because you might move it again and it might choke her airway again. So what they told me what I'd done is basically shifted it enough so it would relieve the pressure on her airway Mm -hmm. so that she could start moving out again. And and what's really kind of been most upsetting is that the ambulance guys and the people in the hospital said if you'd not done that, well... It would have been a very different thing. That would have been, yeah, yeah. You just don't know where it would have gone from then. Yeah. So it's right. it's it's true. Then you know you're talking about twenty odd years ago that you had some some basic training in first aid. Um, That's right. I know. I, I've heard the, the the saying that once you've been trained in first aid, it never leaves you. It's proved that case in you you with you, isn't it? That, that's absolutely right. I mean, I probably haven't thought about that since um, I did the courses. And I suppose we did NCT as well, National Childbirth Trust, when we had our first baby. And they talked a little bit about choking, and but they didn't take us through any sort of procedures. The point is, and, and I've been really struck, I mean, my wife and I have been overwhelmed by the positive uh, goodwill that we're having from strangers and friends and family alike. Uh, but the big thing that's coming through is two things. Firstly, how common this is in terms of people choking. And secondly, how few people know what, would know what to do. Um, and it's not rocket science. You know, I learned that. That procedure I did on Darcy, I probably learned in 15 minutes. Um, but it's it's so simple, it stayed with me. And I remembered that that's what I had to do. So I'm trying to use the attention we're getting to build awareness. And I'm already organising some pop-up first aid training events in my constituency at West Edinburgh because of the sheer number of people who've got in touch with people expressing how much they'd like to, to learn a bit more. Mm. It's it's something that um, I I know that we were talking about this in the office the other day that uh, we've probably all uh, noticed courses being run in our area and thought to ourselves, so that would be good to know that, but never you know do we do enough about it and and is is it not something as well that we should be looking at maybe should be started in schools. Absolutely. I think we have, obviously, we have a captive audience and we teach our kids everything about life in schools except how to save it. And, you know, I think it would be a a huge investment of, well, a great investment to, to spend half a day in the whole course of somebody's education. That's all you'd need, um, to give them that first strike. Uh, emergency care training that they could carry with them for the rest of their life. In other countries where they do make it mandatory in the curriculum or make it mandatory in other ways, um, the the survival rate is much higher for uh, particularly things like cardiac arrest and uh, or heart attack rather, and um, and indeed resuscitation. And I, it, it, for me, it's a no-brainer. I think that we should, and I think we're, that, that opinion is gathering steam. Mm. Uh, Frances Stewart also joins us. She's a trainer with St Andrew's First Aid and was at the Scottish Parliament this week giving evidence to the Petitions Committee calling for first aid lessons in primary schools. Good morning, Frances. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. So, um, you, you've been calling, as, as Alex was saying there, you, you know, that uh, um, maybe something that should be uh, taken into schools. I was thinking secondary schools, but you, you're thinking primary schools. Yes, we would like to put it into primary schools. We have actually, for the past three years, been working in high schools across Scotland, in particular in the Glasgow area, doing a project called Bandage, which is doing emergency first aid training with the secondary school kids. But what we have started to realise is that if we get them earlier and we can get it when they're at primary school age, and like what Alex was saying, 
they absorb everything like a sponge. We teach them everything. So this is the kind of thing that when they're at that vital age, when they're so young, they're already learning so many other things. We want to make this something which is normal and something which they can then carry through them through their secondary education and then on to be an adult as well. How has it been accepted, Francis, by uh, teachers and, and those in the education establishments? In the secondary schools that we work in just now, the teachers absolutely love it. Um, the problem is that we've not obviously been able to get it through as many schools as possible, but the schools that we're going through, we work very closely with the teachers to make sure that we don't disrupt their already heavy work schedules. We want to make sure as much as possible that anything we do, particularly with the primary schools initiative that we want to bring forward, is that we work with the teachers to make sure that we integrate it into their already schedule and we help them to implement it as best they can and make sure it's a seamless process. Alex, is this something that you can use, um, whilst I said at the top of we'll leave politics alone for the mo- for this hour, um, but <laughs> is this something you can use uh, uh, your influence as an MSP to, to say, right, let, let's see where we can get more of this into schools? Absolutely, and that's what I've been trying to do this last week. It's amazing just how much resonance has been, not just in Scotland, but across the world. I did an interview in Canada or Canadian radio and I've had loads of emails from people in North America who are now signing up for first aid courses. Um, Yes, absolutely. I think that we should be pushing on an open door here. Everybody knows the curriculum is, is really full as it is. It's always hard to shoehorn other things into it. But I think that this has to take sort of brighter place at the top of the agenda if we're considering a reform of the curriculum, um, because we're talking about lives here and equipping our younger generation. And let's let's also remember, you're never too old to to learn this stuff. Anyone can pick it up, and it's really simple. It's and if you don't have uh, the time to go to a course, you can get informed with some really helpful YouTube videos from um, St John's Ambulance or Red Cross who have that sort of first strike. Um, training for that emergency care. Um, so there's lots of ways to get informed, but I think we're missing a trick if we don't instill it into the curriculum and teach those kids um, how to save a life. Mm. And I would think, uh, Francis, that to the kids that you are teaching, that they're really welcoming this. This is something different, isn't it? The kids absolutely love it. Um, when you start teaching them things that involve practical elements like CPR, bandage and all that kind of thing. That's something which is really fun and interactive for them but obviously carries a very powerful message as well and could, as Alex has said, help them save a life and there's not many more things that are more important than that. I'm just reading a, a text that's come in here. It says, uh, I agree with Alec um, that the first aid skills should be taught in schools but also free to all ages of community as this will help people in an emergency. My mum was qualified in first aid through her work and went on holiday many years ago. She had to do CPR to a man who collapsed and had a cardiac arrest for over 45 minutes. Uh, so the delay there in getting the ambulance to a rural area, the staff in the hotel were very grateful as no one was qualified in the hotel to do that. Thanks, Kath, for getting in touch. And and I, I think that, to me, uh, Alex, is, is sums it up. We should all know how to do these things, but we, we don't, you know, what... Why is it that, you know, staff in the hotel, nobody knew how to do that? So that that's amazing, well, isn't it? 
That's right. I mean, more and more workplaces are insisting that there is a, a qualified first aid there on, you know, on every floor in every department, and that's great. But, you know, the more people we can train, you know, the wider the net of, uh, of salvation we can cast in our country. So that if you're in a shopping centre and you've got um, kids who are now, you know, if we get to a stage where we're training all our kids in this, then on any given Saturday in a shopping centre, if somebody drops to the floor, um, any number of kids in that mall um, would know what to do. And, yeah. and that's just about extending the reach of that emergency response until, it, you know, our, our emergency care uh, professionals get there. And can I just say, I, I, I will forever be in the debt of Scottish Ambulance Service and NHS Lothian in terms of what they did for us last Saturday. They kept my daughter um, calm. You know, they, they were so sweet to her, they tried to make her laugh, although that was a, quite a hard thing to do at the time. And um, they just, they were professionals and, and I'll never forget their kindness. Mm. Um, Francis, St Andrew's First Aid, uh, is, it, has there been an uptake or is there always people being getting in touch with you asking for courses of, of things or could you do with more? It, we could always be doing with more because our theory is that we and practice that we try and put in place is that we want to make it right across the board that nobody should die because they needed first aid and they didn't get it. So as much as possible, St Andrew's First Aid want to get out there. We obviously do our workplace training, as Alex has said, and obviously as um, the person who sent in the text message said as well. However, we do always do community awareness sessions all the way across Scotland as well. And I would urge anybody who wants to do something within their own community to contact myself directly and at St Andrew's First Aid, and I will work with them as much as possible to try and get stuff out into their communities as well as their workplaces. Fabulous. And how does someone get in touch with you? Just go onto the website? Is that the easiest way? You can either go onto our website, um, which is um, www.firstaid.org.uk, or they can also phone us in at our national headquarters as well, and they will be directed accordingly to anybody they want to speak to or even just get a wee bit more advice on the stuff that we offer. Francis, thank you very much indeed. Francis Stewart, a trainer with St Andrew's First Aid. And Alex Cole Hamilton, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today and, and, and telling us the story. And uh, hopefully, uh, as you say, you have said Darcy's well and, and running around and everything's OK now. That's right. She's great. And uh, we're just counting our blessings as we can and kind of just get back to normal. Life. Normality with a four-year-old running around the house. It doesn't happen. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. So, what are your thoughts on this? Have you been caught out like Kath was talking about on her text there, or her mum jumping in to, to save someone? Have you had that experience? Or indeed, have you felt totally useless when something has happened in front of you? Uh, that number, if you'd like to join us, 033 Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Uh, let's go to Simon. Simon, good morning. Uh, good morning, Ali. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Yourself for the Sunday. You okay? Aye, brand new. Good stuff. Um, the, the reason I called was um, I never did any real training, as in health and, you know, whatever. Uh, I think it's a great thing mm-hmm. that we should bring this into schools and teach kids how to resuscitate, if you like. Yep. Kids. Uh, well, no kids. But well, anybody. People. Yeah. Anybody, yeah. you know. Well, anyway, the, the reason I called was my dad died in uh, 2002, and uh, my brother and I, five years previous to that, had no training at all. But we managed to, well, how do you put it, as pump his chest and breathe for him. And right, did it, did, it, did it collapse in front of you then? Uh, well, no, actually, in front of us, no, but... Uh, 
he had a, a cardiac arrest. Right. And uh, we managed to bring him back. And actually, the paramedics at the time didn't really... What they said to us was, how did you manage this? You know, but it was nothing. We didn't learn anything mm-hmm. through, you know, going to classes or anything. We just... It was like autopilot. And it was like instincts just kicked in, did it? Aye, and we pumped his chest and we breathed. How, how and, did how did you I'm, know? How did you know then how what to do? We didn't. That's, that's the truth. It was something we'd seen in the television and and everything else. That, that's why I'm calling. I think it's very very important that kids should learn these things. You know, at school. Mm-hmm. And I just we we were in autopilot. Right. You know, my dad, we, we got five years of more life out of my dad, which we wouldn't have had. Uh, we we only learned through watching things on television, you know. Uh, you know, the, the, the programmes that you watch, uh, Casualty. I know, well, it's true. I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I, if I was to probably try and do what you did, it would be through what I'd watched on television exactly like you. Don't get me wrong, I mean, my dad, it was like four minutes before we actually did anything. We could, by the time I, I left my house and went over, and it ended up a wee bit uh, brain damaged because the brain, uh, sorry, the, the blood wasn't going to his brain and ended up a wee brain, brain damaged. It was fine, don't get me wrong, it was just, it was fine for five years. Right. And then obviously he had the heart problems, and that's. That's what killed him eventually. But uh, I think the, the reason I'm calling is I think it's very, very important that there should be this kind of tutoring at school mm-hmm. for kids, you know, yep. and yep. let them learn what should be happening. Probably most kids would panic when they see something like that, you know. But and I think, they, if, if I think I'm, I'm with you there and with what... Alex was saying earlier as well, if, if they were to be taught in class um, the basic first aid, the basic how to save someone, um, think of all those kids, uh, just as Alex was saying, around a shopping centre if somebody collapsed, they would be the calm ones, you know, because, because they've aye. been ta- taught to do it. It's more so than us. Well, if, if, if it's in the, the well, curriculum, mm-hmm. that's how you call it, if it's in the curriculum to learn kids these things, I think it'd be a great thing. Yep, so do I, Simon. Yep, I'm with you on that. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much indeed for calling in. Thanks for your story. Michelle's here. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Ali. Right, Um, your comments. I I agree with the previous caller. Um, I think kids should be taught first aid. Maybe no, like primary one, but for primary three onwards, um, I had my ex-partner who was epileptic and we had to teach my son how to put him on his side, um, just to make sure that he was all right because right. I was at work. Mm-hmm. However, I think this should be brought into schools, primary schools, not just secondary schools, just like primary three onwards um, to show kids like, how you can save somebody's life. And I know that there was the advert for a heart attack and it was staying alive and mm-hmm. you were pumping their heart to the tune. How many beans don't know that song? 
It's an 80s song for goodness sake. Yeah, get a new, get a new song <laughs> and up to date. <laughs> it's all, it's all right for you and I. We could pump away to uh, staying alive, staying. I see what you're saying. Yeah, and, yep. but, but kids you are. Can't three... you bits and pieces with George Berry? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I do I, believe that they should do first aid courses in primary school after they get to like primary three. Then that should be compulsory because. To me, it could save somebody's life. I, I've not got one clue about first aid. And if I've got an 11-year-old, and if anything happens to him, I just get a plaster on it and go, are you all right? A wee bit of pseudo-cream. Yeah. And a bit of sorrel, will give you some cowpaw. But this is something that's imperative for the future generations. I think you're right. I think particularly as you're saying, primary three, if they start them there, then they bring them through and they could be getting more intensive uh, training a little later on when they get to secondary school. But the basics, uh, at that age in primary school, they're not frightened of anything. They'd be, they'd be quite happy to take part in it. Michelle, thank you very much indeed. Let's go to John. Hi, John. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Alex. Right, your comments then. Well, I work with a large bus company and I've recently put forward a proposal that all the drivers be taught CPR. Um, initially, I received a great response to this, even from one of the directors. Um, and then there was a lot of negativity coming through on the forum that I was on about um, leaving yourself wide open to lawsuits for breaking ribs and stuff like this. Now, I'd love to learn this with all the passion I've got for it. And I lost my mother-in-law. Uh, about 10, 12 years ago, through a heart attack while out shopping, and no one there to help her. Uh, I think it's a great idea that everybody should be taught this, uh, and, I, and I would like to see it done quickly and as fast as possible. Thanks. I think that's a great initiative, John. And, and you know, those negative vibes coming through on the on the as you say you, you is it a company forum is it um yes yeah yes. I, I i can understand there will be some people with reservations but if i had dropped of a heart attack and someone broke a couple of ribs to try and save me um i i would be quite happy to take those couple of broken ribs if i was saved by somebody who had an idea or knew what they were doing so i think training um, it's, it's a few weeks ago we were talking about uh, these defibrillators and, and possibly there should be one in, in, in taxis. Um, maybe there should be one in buses as well. You know, it's, 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 a, yeah. case, it's a case of saving people. So, wh- so where's your initiative going now then? Is it stalled? It seems to have stalled at the moment. Um, I haven't had any more feedback in the forum. Um, so... I'm quite fortunate in the sense that I have my daughters and us and our, our husbands and us with the NHS and uh, they, they say that they'll help out as much as they can for myself personally. But I would like to see everybody in the bus industry and in any industry being able to act on a situation if it should arise right in front of you. But to stand there, you see a lot of people would stand there and go, oh, what do I do? I, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to do anything. And that time that you, you dither about is invaluable to the person that's having the heart attack. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think that uh, it would be a, a, a great move by the bus company if they were to take that on board. Um, it would take a bit of organising and there would be those drivers. It doesn't need to be compulsory to, not, to start with. It can... Uh, 
It can be somebody like um, the the first aid companies getting involved and running courses, St Andrew's First Aid, Red Cross, Heart Start, they could all get involved. But I think it's a great initiative, John. Keep us in touch and let us know how it's going, all right? I will do, Ellie. Thanks very thank much. You, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, and a good, it'd be good to hear from any of the bus company uh, directors or, or whoever. You know, as John said, it was, it was uh, greeted very warmly at first. But um, taxi drivers, bus drivers, people who are going about serving the public, um, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, um, it's something that should be done and even people like me should be able to go and learn how to save a life. What a great thing it must be able to do. Keep those calls coming in. Oh, treble three twenty twenty four oh one. Um Have you got a story about a time you decided on a dramatic career change? Is the campaign starting to encourage more men to take up nursing? Currently, they only make up 10% of the profession. Our chief reporter, Hope Webb, has been chatting to Bruce Harper MacDonald from Edinburgh about he en- how he ended up in the NHS. I started working for Halifax Bank of Scotland Group, HBOS, which is no longer, luckily got made redundant from them. Uh, so I had a really good career with HBOS. I worked in a senior position. I was working with mortgages. Uh, and I think the thing is, although I enjoyed the job, there was something missing. There was something not there. And I thought, you know, what else can I do? So, yes, I gave up all the perks of working for a bank and came to work for the health service. But working as a nurse is very rewarding. You can't you can't put a price on being there with somebody at the last few days of their life. Uh, you know, you can't quantify that in terms of a bonus that you got once a year from working for a bank. And did you ever, when you thought about switching, think about the the gap between men and women when it comes to nursing? Or was it something that you just instantly wanted to kind of get into? It was something I instantly wanted to do. I suppose I went from a universe where it was mainly men dominated in banking roles that were higher up to coming into a role where there wasn't as many men. I mean, I went to university with 300 students and I was maybe one of six men that were there. And what was that like to kind of get used to? It never bothered me when I actually worked as a student and I never really noticed it when I worked in the hospital. When I noticed it was when I went and became a district nurse and at the time I was the only male district nurse that NHS Grampian had employed. And do you find that you now have that job satisfaction that, you know, you're you're getting what you want out of this? You know, when you think back to yourself those years ago... I've got the best job in the world because I still work as a nurse two shifts a month. I get to teach nursing. I work with undergraduate and postgraduate students. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And I think that's the important thing if you think about a nursing career is thinking about all the different options. So you can go into advanced nurse practice. You could go into teaching. You can go into management. You can go into clinical specialties. You can stay working as a nurse. So there's loads of career options. I think it's a career you could never get bored what would be your message then to men listening to this who have maybe considered it or you know, are thinking about potentially getting into nursing? Just do it. You're going to get... Uh, even if you do it and choose that nursing's not the direction for you, you're still going to walk away with a solid degree. You're getting a bursary for doing it. There's very few courses where you're getting financial support to do the course and a qualification. And actually, when you do it, you'll end up loving it and follow it through as a career. Our our chief reporter, Hope Webb, chatting there to Bruce Harper-McDonald from Edinburgh about how he ended up uh, swapping jobs for the better. So have you made a big change in your life? Was it the best thing you ever did? Um, I've changed careers probably a couple of times um, and 
luckily, uh, by coming into radio uh, a few years ago, uh, worked through various positions in radio as well with the group that I'm with at the moment. So it, it gave me that different jobs and different skills. Um, but I do remember um, a few years ago now, probably in the 80s, I was asked to go to a, a secondary school and uh, talk careers to this group, to which I did. And, and, I, and I said, you know, that if you fancied journalism or you fancied engineering or radio, whatever it was you wanted to do, and you got into that job and you found, and these were sort of 15, 16-year-olds, remember, and if you got into that job and a couple of years down the line you decided into yourself, you know, I don't really like this, then you should look for something that you do like. You shouldn't just stick to the one job. And I got asked back um, by the the school to talk to another group a few months later, but I was asked if I would leave that out as the careers teacher didn't want them thinking that they could move jobs willy-nilly. I suggested that they get someone else because I firmly believe if you're not in a job that you enjoy, if you can move, then do. So have you? Have you changed jobs? I trained, I left school, went to college and trained as a chef. Um, wasn't for me, wasn't something I wanted to do. What about you? Treble 3 2020 401. Go on, give us a call, tell me your story. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. And we were talking there about changing career. Michael uh, texts in, he says, uh, back in 2003, I went from catering in the uh, into the supply chain uh, when I was in the Royal Fleet Auxiliary. It was a huge move for me as I'd been cooking for over 20 years. I had excellent training with the Royal Navy and it set me up well for what I do today. I do not regret it and I urge anyone that is not happy in their work and want to try something else than to go for it. At the end of the day, it's only the individual that holds yourself back. Thank you. All right. Uh, good. Well done to you. Uh, let's go to Alistair next. Hello, Alistair. Good morning to you. Hello, Ali. Good morning. First time caller. Uh, yes, first time caller, first time listener. Really? Uh, yes. Well, yes. well it, it gets better as the day goes on, okay? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so what do you want to comment on then, Alistair? I, I was co- wanted to comment on the... Um, the the first aid situation. Okay. Um, I I have just retired from teaching PE for a long, long, long time in Glasgow, and was working twenty years ago with uh, the advisor in PE, and he was looking for mannequins for his um, secondary teacher PE teachers for so that they could teach swimming. And I got a name, got in touch with this lady at the British Heart Foundation, and then discovered through this that there is a, a programme called Heart Start, uh, an absolutely fantastic programme that goes from uh, zero to hero, if you like, uh, in so much as it's teaching very young children how to recognise that something may be wrong and uh, go into emergency mode by contacting 999 or an adult, but to know the steps to go, then as it progresses, um, going on to resuscitation uh, and uh, that type of thing. And one of the things that comes along with the British Heart Foundation pack is mannequins um, for uh, schools to be able to use and practice. And obviously there's training um, for for the teachers to Mm. be able to go on and teach that particular part itself. Now, it's been a while. I don't know whether it's changed. 
Um, but it was uh, something that I saw success in, and most of the secondary schools in Glasgow took that on, as I say, these 20 years ago, and a lot of the primary schools. Uh, so, and uh, you know, from visiting different schools, I was aware, you know, that there was a mannequin sitting in a cupboard somewhere, not necessarily being used. Yeah. So it's something that we need to go on. Uh, and was it, was it something that was um, welcomed by the pupils? It was, um, because they could all recognise something, you know, where, you know, somebody's been hurt and what would they do? Um, and, you know, oh, my my, my granny had uh, had to go to hospital. She'd had a heart attack or whatever, you know, and uh, the kids absolutely love it. As a lady from, um, I can't remember uh, which organisation she was on earlier from, uh, that goes into schools, she was they're sponges, give them anything and they will learn. Uh, they just soak it up uh, and, and getting this we need to help kind of thing if there's something wrong mm. I, know, I, I know where to start yes yeah, uh, and, the, and the first thing is getting help uh, and from an early age that's one of the things that, uh, that, that happens it's something I've actually had to use on several times once or twice uh, in school um, at home as well uh, and um there's obviously there's, there's other parts of uh, you know first aid that you know that also uh, come into that. I've got so you pick up, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a daughter who has um, you know, significant health problems. I've had to use uh, resuscitation in her, but one of the problems she did have also was uh, that she had a shoulder that popped out a lot, which I was able to uh, to get back in, and uh, <laughs> it's. Quite a funny anecdote, um, at the time very serious, but uh, she had been taken to hospital with problems, uh, was taken up to a ward, and just before I was saying uh, cheerio to her, uh, she um, required resuscitation. I called for help. Uh, I was ushered out into a a patient's uh, family room, uh, and about 20 minutes later, you know, somebody came in and said, you know, Alistair, well, uh, you know, everything's OK with your daughter, but we have a problem. Uh, and I said, oh, what's that? She said, her shoulders come out. Uh, and what we want to do is to send her back down to A&E. She'll get a lot of drugs that we don't really want her to have. But your daughter said, you can put it back in. So I ended up in the room uh, with about 12 people from the crash team there. Um absolute dead silence and my daughter could actually at points sometimes manage to just do it herself and she was trying before I would uh, do it and there was not a sound and all I could think of was I said guys if she manages it I still want to call out (laughs) (laughs) but uh, there is a lighter side to that I'm going to have to stop you there because we, we're right up against the news. But uh, thank you very much indeed for coming on and telling us uh, your story. That's it for Scotland's Talking today.